We're in Isaiah again, chapter 54. It's not Christmas yet, so we can chip away at the Old Testament. The restoration of the Jews, that's the subject, I think, standing out for us in this section. I'm going to take about 15% of the text to talk about the things going on here. Much of what is happening in chapter 54 is fulfilled in the kingdom age that we know is the millennial reign of Christ. But why say it to generations of Jews who will not live to see it? Well, some will, but not all of them. Well, you have to ask yourself, I guess, why are you curious about end-time prophecy? Why has the church been curious about end-time prophecy if most of the church did not live to see the fulfillment of the rapture or the uh, end-time things, that we're, some of the things we're getting to see ourselves. Well, the same reason that God tells the church about future things that excites us. For instance, in, in Revelation chapter 1, God says, we'll be, we're going to be kings and priests in the millennial kingdom with Christ. We'll be in leadership positions and spiritual positions. There'll be no more corrupt governments, and we'll be one of the reasons why there'll be no more corruption in government. We want to hear about these things, how the world ends, what Christ and what God is going to do. Well, the Jews also, they're curious. They want to know what was going to happen. And Isaiah is telling them, this is what's going to happen to us as a people. And he'll point out as he goes through his prophecies to the end that, of course, there will be those that aren't faithful amongst the Jews and they will be dealt with by God. They will not benefit from these things that are coming. In both cases, we don't know when the next age begins. The age of the church was unknown to the ancient Jews. We do not know the day nor the hour of the rapture. We know the season. We, um, we don't expect, there's nothing really left to fulfill before the rapture takes place. It can happen at any moment. There are no more prophecies. The only, maybe the one detail that could slow things up a little bit is is, the, uh, is technology where it needs to be for Antichrist to globally rule the world? I think we're almost there. Not quite. But when I say not quite, it could be a year away, the way technology goes. So um, these are the end time things that we're interested in, and the Jews would have been interested too. In this chapter, he's going to call them to sing about the things that God is going to do. Because remember, Isaiah 53, about the servant, the Messiah, it hasn't taken place in the days of Isaiah. That's future prophecy to them. is past prophecy for us. It's fulfilled in Christ. And this singing is associated with marriage. That's the metaphor that God chooses. Because that's associated with the covenant between God and Israel. The image in this chapter is of Yahweh, the faithful husband, forgiving, forgiving Israel or Judah, the unfaithful wife because of the idolatry that she was determined to invest in. Now, Isaiah has used the marriage image earlier in chapter 50. He'll use it again in chapter 64. It's a fitting metaphor. Hosea picks it up. Jeremiah picks it up. Ezekiel does also. The nation was joined to Yahweh at 
Mount Sinai. Now, here's, I think, an interesting part of why this metaphor was chosen. Would you have preferred, if you were a Jew, for God to choose a business metaphor? That we're business partners. See, that wouldn't work well. The intimacy of a marriage is just right for God to make his points about his emotional attachment, if we can say that about God, to the Jewish people, to any of his people. But in the course, the days of Isaiah is primarily focused on, on the Jews, although God has other people. Job was not a Jew. Enoch, you could not say, was a Jew, though the, the Jews come along the line of Enoch. But God is always mindful of all people. And so he sends the prophets with this promise that Israel will ultimately be restored when Messiah returns. And I would have wanted to hear that. Now, we covered earlier, Yahweh divorced the northern kingdom. Their idolatry was so bad. They were done. And the Assyrians came, conquered the land, took the people out of the land, and Judah remained. He does not give a certificate of divorce to Judah. Now, these are little technical things, but they're eye-opening as to what God is doing and how he treats those who have tremendous opportunity and, and ruin it, they choose to ruin it. God is metaphorically married to Judah, and if that is true, how can the church be the bride of Christ? These are little questions that I just wanted to tinker with up here. Well, the metaphor of marriage, again, to Judah comes from the covenant. Now, Judah is is the dominant tribe, but under their umbrella are all members of all the tribes. There were Jews in the tribe of Gad and Asher, for example, in the northern kingdom. And when the Assyrians came, they took all those tribes away. But peoples from those tribes had migrated to Judah and stayed there. In fact, when uh, Jeroboam becomes king of the northern kingdom and he sets up his false idols, many of the uh, righteous Jews from the various tribes left the northern kingdom and came to Judah. And so Judah, when we speak of Judah, that is the dominant tribe, but it is encompassing all of the tribes of the Jews. So we're kind of splitting hairs here, but I think it's informative. Well, the metaphor of marriage to Judah stems from the covenant, and the metaphor of marriage to the church stems from the new covenant, nullifying the old. Now, again, a metaphor, the parables, the illustrations, they only go so far. They're not absolute. They're vehicles of, of, that God uses to teach us about himself. There are no parables or metaphor or superlative words that can really describe God. They all fall short, but they help us. They help us to understand he's a father, he's a shepherd, he's a king. He's a king with a shepherd's heart. He's the great physician. But there's much more to God than any of those descriptions, but they're very helpful to us. So the metaphor of marriage to Judah from the Old Covenant, the metaphor of marriage to the church in the new covenant, nullifying the old covenant. And then it is all put together by Jesus in this one verse in John chapter 10. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. 
So the, me- the metaphors of marriage sort of fade out of the way, and we end up with the, the final result of we will be with the king, all of us, the righteous will be together. And when there's a new heavens and new earth, it will be made up of those people who loved God in this lifetime and entered into his gates of glory. I don't know. I find all of this just fascinating how the scripture just ties it all in. Uh, If the Old Testament was limited to the Jewish people only, it would drastically reduce its usefulness to us. But it is very useful to us, very helpful. Even in the parts of it that are no longer enforced, the rituals of the, of the, the, the burnt offering, the whole burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass, the peace offering, they all speak to us about things in our lives, even though we do not have to take a peace offering to Jerusalem and offer it up. And even if we, we could, we, we, uh, we, we should not. We have an altar. Our altar is Christ. No Christian should engage in any of those Old Testament rituals, which is Paul tells the Jews in Hebrews when he writes the Hebrew letter. But um, you can't. There's no temple for the Jew to do any of these things, which has been prophesied in the Old Testament. But all of the Old Testament goes beyond the Jewish people. It starts off with their great patriarch, Abraham. God said, I'm going to bless all the people through you in Genesis 12, verse 3. Of course, Isaiah 42, 1, I want you to reach the Gentiles, be a light to the Gentiles. In the New Testament, the Jewish Messiah says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And what he, was, what he meant by that is, just, just preach to the Jews, preach to every creature. Not the cats and the chickens and stuff like that, but the people. God used the Jews to reach mankind. A mankind that turned on him before the flood. A mankind that turned on him at the Tower of Babel. A mankind that turned on him in Sodom and Gomorrah. And a mankind that turned on him at the place called Golgotha, Calvary, the skull, where they crucified Christ. Isaiah, preaching, to righteous Jews and unrighteous Jews alike, holding out the message of hope to one and warning the other. The choice would be on them individually. But they had this rich history in their scripture of those who betrayed God, and they could measure themselves by that. Am I going to betray God? Am I going to behave like those that were washed away in the flood? Am I going to behave like those at the Tower of Babel that were looking to factor God out of human development? Am I going to be like those in Sodom and Gomorrah that satisfy my sinful urges no matter what God says? Or will I be one that crucifies the Messiah again? These are vital lessons that the church is supposed to bring to the world. How else are they going to find out about it? We're going to trust Hollywood to bring the message, to drive it home, to uphold it, to to maintain it. This section is about Judah's relationship with God and their end times given in metaphor. And it is rich with information for us also. And so we come to the first verse. And this first verse is directly linked to the last verse of the previous chapter. Remember, when these prophecies were given, there were no chapter divisions. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate 
than the children of the married woman, says Yahweh. Well, looking back at verse 12 of Isaiah 53, he poured out his soul unto death for our iniquities. That summarizes the entire 53rd chapter. That's how that chapter closes, with that summary. It's an epilogue. The prophet now shouts on the heels of that. Sing. This is something to rejoice about. There is a servant coming that is going to rescue us from sin. Our iniquities will be upon him. Sing about this. And then he brings into this picture the barren. There's a personal connection between the sacrifice and the servant. And the song of the ransomed sinners cannot be missed. Is that important? Zephaniah, who comes in the days of of Jeremiah, in the last days of King Josiah. Zephaniah chapter 3. Yahweh your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Sounds like a New Testament verse. Sounds like something maybe John would write. It's an Old Testament prophet writing in the midst of a people determined to reject God, which is not hard for us to believe because we look at so many churches today. They're not interested in the Bible. They just want to be told to feel good about themselves and they're going to heaven. That's all they want to know in some circles. That's always been. There's always been these fraudulent churches. It's not new. And there have always been a remnant at the least that really want what God wants the ultimate fulfillment is when the Redeemer comes to Zion and the nation is born again. Isaiah 59, verse, verse 20. I won't read it yet. Maybe if we have time later, uh, I can come back to it. He says, O barren, you who have not born. Um, an allegorical verse with national and prophetic and literal applications. It speaks to Judah's present condition in the days of Isaiah. Personified Zion in chapter 49 described herself as barren and bereaved of her children because of the judgments that would befall them. The captivity that was coming to Babylon, which most of them probably did not believe at the time that Isaiah preached it. They'll find out the hard way. They'll resist it right up to the end. Because they're resisting God. And that's why Jeremiah suffered so much at the hands of the politicians, the princes, the kings. Because he was telling them, you need to submit. This is punishment from God. Go to Babylon. And he wrote to those in Babylon, build houses, have gardens, raise families. Because you're not coming back. This is punishment from God. But he knows the thoughts that he has towards you. Thoughts of love and peace to give you a future and a hope. You will be brought back. (laughs) Most of you from that generation will not, but some of you will. Anyway, coming back to this here, it speaks of Judah's condition. It also promises Judah's recovery. This Speaking about this, this metaphor now of a barren woman has, again, wide applications. He's moved away from the marriage metaphor. Well, he's come, coming back to that. We haven't gotten to that yet. But this... Analogy points to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was barren. Abraham and Sarah had no children together. 
they, Sarah came up with that harebrained idea of bringing in Hagar, which is so typical to this day of Christians who want something, God's not doing it, and they take matters into their own hands. They might put his name on it, but it's not God, and they create a Hagar in their life. Abraham had to live with Hagar to the end of his life. That was the, the consequences are real. They matter. Uh, Judah's roots reached to the promise of offspring to come from Sarah. Paul quotes this verse in Isaiah about the barrenness, applying it to Christians, uh, that uh, we will be the children of promise, that we will not be barren as the servants of the Lord, as illustrated in Abraham and Sarah. Our legitimate place as the people of God. That's what Paul was writing. He's writing to the Galatians, uh, the Christians in Galatia, many of them Gentiles. And he's saying the Jews may be coming along telling you that you're not really a believer. And I'm telling you, you are. And he, he used such verses as this one and the story of Abraham and Sarah to make his point. One other thing this O oh, barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, has to do with those who are righteous but have not been fruitful. In two different ways this can apply. It can be both at the same time or, or just one. Literally, a childless person through no fault of their own, for example, still a blessing to God. Uh, this society made that difficult on, on the women, and I'll come to that. But the other one is spiritually. So you literally, he's seeing, he, this applies to those who are without children. And then spiritually, uh, if, you, if you have no converts, uh, through no fault of your own, if you just haven't, that's not happened. Well, there's more to your Christian life than making converts. There are other things for you to do. If you cannot um, captain a ship, Maybe you can row on that ship. There's something for you to do. If you cannot preach from the pulpit, there are plenty of other things to do within the house of God. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud. Because God's going to make you fruitful. That's why. That's why he's telling them to sing and cry aloud. Because the servant has come for sinners. And if you are in a place spiritually or literally and you're barren, God has not turned his back on you. God's exhortation is to rejoice. And it comes from uh, the revelation of his word and Sarah, again, and Abraham being an example. You who have not labored with child. I, I believe when Isaiah makes many of these prophecies, analogies, illustrations, etc., that uh, he, he often has someone in mind. Perhaps at such a time he knew of a woman, uh, and it would not have been impossible, not far-fetched at all. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth, all of these women at some point felt the social frown of being childless. And that, in that society, man, if you didn't have a child, you some people going to raise them eyebrows on you. Sarah, Rachel, and Hannah were harassed because of it. Hannah, the mother of that great prophet Samuel. Peninnah, her, her wife-in-law, under that polygamous system, harassed her, provoked her. 
Peninnah is remembered as an irritant. That's it. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, she was a prophetess, not not a practicing a lot like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but God used that woman in such a mighty way to raise. You know, okay, if I can't be a prophet, I can raise one. She did, and we have that beautiful prophecy of hers in First uh, Samuel, I believe, chapter two. Uh, it, it's incredible. He takes the, the, the beggar off the dunghill. I mean, that's what happens when Christ takes a life and that is born again. Anyway, there is something here for all who are wrongfully victimized, which is part of this message that God is giving through Isaiah. If you are victimized in an unchristlike setting, no matter if you're around people who claim to be Christians or not, God is mindful of that. You still have something to sing about. Your sins have been dealt with. You won't be here forever. There are many bullies in life. God is no bully and never. He says, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says Yahweh. They will reap as one who has not sown. There will be blessings that they really had not much to do with. Christ was biologically childless. We covered that in the last chapter. But spiritually, of course, he was not. The barren are given here an assurance of becoming spiritually prolific. What does that mean? Well, the barren, or those childless, we'll use more modern form, uh, they are less divided, less distracted with their personal interests. The blessedness of being childless exists. It's not a curse to have children, and it's not a curse to be without children. Although some will try to make it so. But here, clearly the Bible goes against that, and I'm going to build on that in a little bit. But you can have a spiritual orchard. You can be very fruitful. Such men as Daniel, John the Baptizer, Paul the Apostle, 1 Corinthians, Paul says in the 7th chapter, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remained even as I am. Yeah, they might find, fight, be fighting loneliness or, you know, the one companion. They may have, you know, other desires or societies pressing on them. And here comes the Apostle Paul and he says, you know, it's good if you don't marry. Well, he, he develops that in the same chapter in verses 32 and 33. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And so Paul is saying, look, everybody can't receive this, but let's be honest here. Those without families, children, and that, you know, marriage and things... They're less distracted when it comes to serving. Paul did not have to check with his wife, get home to the kids as a single apostle. And this is not a condemnation on either side. But what it is, what it is is saying, don't go around saying, I'm better than you because I have children. Or somehow you're not blessed as much as I am. Mother Hubbard could have a platoon of children. That's fine. The minute she starts boasting that she's better than those without as many children or any children, 
uh, that would be a problem. You say, well, why are you even staying on this? Well, because I have come across some short-sighted people who were, were like, were judgmental of those without children, going so far to say it's a sin not to have kids. Well, then John the Baptist, <laughs> what do you do with that? Jeremiah likely also didn't have any children. He's another one. Proverbs 21, verse 4. <clears throat> when this is when you look down. When you look down on those without children, you're picking a fight with God. Now, again, you may not have had this encounter. You may have it later. And it's worth covering while we're on it. Because we really don't get it in too many other places in Scripture. Um, Proverbs 21, 4. Concerning those who... Look down on others. A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. Proverbs 21.4. Nothing confusing about that. You want to pick a fight with God? Become arrogant. Heirs of superiority doesn't, doesn't serve God well. Psalm 101 verse 5. And there's just some of them. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. God resists the proud. We, so when we think of proud, pride, there's, 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 a, there's a positive type of pride when you're joyful about something. I'm joyful that my child got all A's. I'm proud of her or him. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you start saying, what'd your kid get? <laughs> a D? <laughs> well, of course, D is for dumb. And, and so now you've got a big problem. There's the arrogance. There's the haughtiness that's coming into the picture. You say, this is all basic. Who doesn't know this? Well, evidently, a lot of people, because we run across it. In some subtle way, we come across these things. And if God felt, I need to put this in print for all the ages, then we cannot dismiss it, thinking that, well, who would be that messed up? You know when it happens? When the pressure is on. See, somebody can be just wonderful and nice and sweet when there's no pressure on them. But the minute it's their turn or their child's turn, now you're going to find out their true colors. If they're going to stick with the Lord and do the right thing, or they're going to cave in and turn on everybody for daring to notice the sin. Verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Now remember, this is multiple applications to Judah, to the individual. God is saying, make room for, for growth from the blessings that are coming. And I want you to make room for the growth before the blessings come by faith. Israel's descendants will increase. And they will settle in foreign cities. There'll be too many. And what would happen if all the Jews outside of Jerusalem went to, Jer to, to live in Israel? It would be one crowded place. It would be very, wouldn't it? It'd be pretty, pretty tough. So you, you probably have more Jews living outside of Israel than you do in Israel. They have been very prolific. And this is a testimony to God's blessing on them. No other people have been such a target of genocide as the Jews, and yet they keep expanding. Thank you, Lord. So, verse 3, For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Well, this hasn't taken place yet, but before I comment on its kingdom age, uh, the kingdom age expansion, 
William Carey was a missionary to India. And he really, you could say, the father of modern missionaries or mission work. Uh, Things have changed a little now. They're not like it was in his day for a, a number of reasons. But this was at a time when it was good for the missionaries to stay where they had been sent and build churches and make converts. Now it is a, a better approach is to make converts of the indigenous people and let them build the churches and, and do the work. But in those days, and this is not that far away, this is in the late 1700s when William Carey went to India, uh, he needed to stay there. Well, he used Isaiah 54 verses 3 and 4 as his text to tell the church we need to expand, we need to make room, we need to go out and reach those who are without salvation. Verses 2 and 3 is what he used. So he says, uh, so that's the William Carey story behind that verse, but its application is to the kingdom age, global expansion, the collective work of Christ reigning in Jerusalem. Remember, the Lord will reign from Jerusalem when he returns there's, there are going to be a lot of great tribulation survivors that will not be taken away in judgment, that will go on to live, who have never died, who have not really heard the gospel. And they're going, to have, they're going to be very prolific. They're going to have many children. And those children are not just going to learn about Christ through osmosis. They're going to have to be taught, just like people are today. Even with Christ living in Jerusalem, He is going to still delegate the gospel to the Jewish people and to us, those who have come through this life. And so you'll have the entire righteous Jewish people. All the Jews will be righteous in the kingdom age. There will be no apostate Jews. They will be lovers of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Remember, two-thirds of them will be wiped out. That one surviving third will all be converted to the Christ, and they will be alive during the uh, millennial reign of Christ. Then you have the glorified saints from Adam to the last martyr that have died, that will be here, as we're told in Revelation 1-5 and other places, reigning with Christ. Authorities within the Gentile communities. Civilization will be thriving in the great tribulation period. Uh, those who are disrespectful are warned they will be punished. Christ will rule with an iron rod. Things are going to be a lot different. The environment will, will drastically change. No one will have an excuse for rejecting Christ. Of course, at the end of the thousand-year period, Satan is about a thousand years, Satan is let loose, and he's going to make converts. And we'll come to that at the, at the end of this when Christ will deal with them. There's just a brief mention of that. Remember, Isaiah doesn't see all of this as well as we see it, but he's got, he's got the foundation for it. Verse 4, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. So, again, the baron that he was talking to, Isaiah, applying it to the nation Israel, but it expands out to individuals also. 
Here he is saying to the nation, do not fear, you will not be put to shame. The Lord will always honor faith that is according to Scripture because such faith always honors him. If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. God knows that people shame people for the wrong reasons. He knows that. The Jews were, where he says, for I will forget the shame of your youth, that refers to their idolatry. But when he says, do not fear, at the beginning of verse 4, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. He's talking about restored Israel. Uh, people, as I mentioned, uh, they will be ashamed for the wrong reasons. Some are trying to take shame out of sin. Nudist colonies are that. You know, so nudity is a part of the curse, that, well, the, the, the stigma that goes with it. The, the mindset on this public nudity is, hey, it is an issue. Uh, so there are many people that are trying to take shame out of sin on multiple levels. And so when he says here to the Jews, for you will forget the shame of your youth, yeah, because they're going to be restored and they won't be sinning. This is picked up in, uh, when I mentioned it, is because of their idolatry, Forty Isaiah 45, verse 16, and just take that one. Knowing, learning the Bible, right? Going over what the scripture teaches and why it backs up what it says and why it is self-correcting and self-instructing. Isaiah 45, verse 16. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go into confusion together who are makers of idols. So the shame Isaiah is talking about upon Judah is because of their idolatry. Jeremiah echoes what Isaiah is saying in the third chapter. And this is all the troubles that uh, they faced. Their idolatry. The prophets also linked idolatry to sexual infidelity. Uh, thus the book of Hosea. And Ezekiel talks about it in the 16th chapter. Jeremiah in the 13th chapter. Because wherever there's idolatry, there are going to be other sins out of control also, Psalm 25, this is a psalm of David that the older you get, maybe the more you appreciate it. David said, do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Yahweh. Is there anybody here that would like to say to God, I just want your justice? I would never say that to God. I want your mercy. I do not want justice. That would be it. Uh, God is merciful. And uh, we are ecstatic about that. He says, and will, and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. So what he is saying here, that you know, you're going to be in a position where you have no protector and no provider. If you were a widow in that ancient culture and you had no one to provide and protect, you were in a difficult spot. And God has a lot to say about taking care of widows when there was no system, there was no, you know, welfare system or anything in place for the people. The human kindness was it. And so God is saying to Judah, which again encompasses all the tribes, uh, you're going to be in, uh, judged, but it's not going to be forever. When, when you are conquered by the Babylonians and put in exile and then you have to come back and then there are going to be other hard times because of your idolatry, ultimately, 
in the kingdom age, you will be a widow. You will um, not suffer those conditions as a widow anymore. Verse 5, and then he says, for your maker is your husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. So Isaiah is he's probably sending zingers to idolaters, excluding all of the fake gods. And there are two separate conditions here, the maker and the husband. More metaphor, more parallels, more superlatives. God is joined to me in a way that no man can separate me from God. He is the creator and he is the companion before sin entered the picture. That's what he was to Adam and Eve, the creator and the companion. But once sin came in, now he has to be the provider and the protector. Uh, things got nasty after that. He does not uh, cower or humiliate me under the weight of his enormity. God is huge. He is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. But he doesn't try to make me cower in his presence. He invites me to come to him with joy, with singing in my heart. Luke chapter 15. Here we have a picture illustrating uh, the heart of God. It is in the father of the prodigal son. That son did not deserve anything, the way he treated his father. Uh, Just give me my stuff and I'm out of here. And of course, he goes and he wastes all of it because he thought his father was, you know, a fool. And he was not. And he wasted all of his money. He suffered. And finally, an epiphany. It struck him. You know, I would be better as a servant in my father's house than where I am out here in the world. And he goes back. And, of course, we know the father sees him from a distance. He knows his child. He knows how he, that gait, how he walks, his posture. He knows him. And he runs to that child. And he embraces him. And the child is humbled at that point. Well, uh, Luke 15, 31, uh, before the all gets goes south, he said to his son, you are always with me and all I have is yours. Right, to the, actually, the other son. The point that I'm trying to illustrate, not so clumsily, is that we have a picture here of the father and his heart, of, of not looking to humiliate his children, but, but, not, but standing his ground, of course, but, but trying to let them understand that they are loved. Well, I have found God has always been that way with me. Even at my worst, he is always, uh, I've always sensed his love and his open arms. I've never felt, now there are times I felt that there was an iron wall up and my prayers aren't getting heard, that God has just said, this is how it's going to be. And there's no prayer that you can say is going to change the situation. Well, you come across a few of those in life. But that doesn't mean he's angry or cold or unapproachable. Um, It's like he said to Moses, don't bring this up again. Now, about other business, Moses. (laughs) And, And that's pretty much what happened. Well, the Lord of hosts is his name, Isaiah 54, 5. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Well, this is the incarnate Christ. That again, the Jews at this time did not have the information we have. But when Christ came, there was no excuse. The things that Christ was doing, it was just no way to dismiss it without being guilty. 
Why did they reject him? Because he didn't, there was no backslapping going on. He didn't pat them on the back and say, boy, you guys are wonderful. I'm glad you're the leaders in Israel. It was none of that. It was quite the opposite. It's like, you better fix this kind of in his sermons. Imagine if somebody came along uh, fitting all the criteria of Messiah, born in Bethlehem. Uh, you, let me just stop a minute and make this mention. Uh, this, say this about the Roman Catholic cult who, um, you know, Jesus was not Joseph's first son. They have this kind of stuff in their teaching. Then that means Christ would not have had any rights to the throne of David. The other sons would have been ahead of him. See, that just twists up everything. That kind of, that's what they do, though. Rather than admit that Mary wasn't a virgin, they come up with these harebrained things to kind of take it all away. Well, anyway, uh, I mean, that, I'm sorry. They, they admit that he, she was a virgin, but that he didn't have any more kids. They try to say, well, no, those are Joseph's kids, not Mary's kids. Well, this is not going how I planned it in my head. But anyway, I hope I didn't confuse you. Just uh, summarize that. The Roman Catholic Church does not want Mary to have any other children. And so they come up with these screwball ideas and uh, accusations that the brothers and sisters of Christ mentioned in the Scripture was where they were Joseph's children before Mary came along from another marriage. And, well, that would mean that those boys, James and Judas and the others, would have a right to the throne of David before Christ. And God would not let that happen. Christ is the firstborn of Mary, and she had subsequent children, and that is scriptural. This Christ, God in the flesh, God the Son, is who this is talking about. The Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So if you have someone fit the cri- meet the criteria of Messiah, born in Bethlehem, the line of David, um, there's other prophecies surrounding him. And then he goes and he empties out the hospitals, if I could say it that way. Heals everybody. Who in their right mind would say he's not the one? He's just an average guy. He's a counterfeit. He's preaching God's word. He's telling you to your face that he is fulfilling prophecy and he's backing it up. Who in their right mind would then say, he's an imposter, let's kill him? That's exactly what they did. And they're not innocent for that. In case you have struggled with, you know, well, how are they supposed to know? How could they not know is the question. Well, Luke chapter 24, verse 21. This is on the road to Emmaus. And they're, they're educating this person that has inserted himself in the conversation, which is the risen Christ, and they don't know that at this point, and they make this statement, we were hoping that it was he who was to redeem Israel. Well, he is the one, and not only Israel, the Gentiles too. It's short-sighted there, which just proves Christian doesn't have to have to all their theology together to be loved and saved. Anyway, Titus chapter 2. Who gave himself for us, talking about Christ, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You can't do that unless you're God. Peter couldn't, could not uh, redeem everyone from lawless deeds and purify them for himself. Only God could do that. And this is another 
proof of the deity of Christ, which is everything. If you do not believe that Christ is equal with the Father, then you are against Christ because that is his revelation to man. And that's what the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses, why they are so lost. They refuse to accept who Christ says he is. Imagine you coming along telling somebody who you are and people just, you know, no, we're going to change that. (laughs) We're going to say this is who you are. Whether it's true or not, this is how it's going to be. Well, how about the Holy One? Luke chapter 1. And the angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, speaking to Mary, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Well, when the Jews spoke of someone being the Son of God, in the, with the definite article, the Son of God, that was either blasphemy or fulfillment of prophecy. This is a big deal. Mary had a hard time, man, what people must have thought of her, or what they did think of her. Thank God Elizabeth was there for her. Well, anyway, uh, what I'm pointing out is Isaiah speaking about Yahweh of hosts is his name here in verse 5. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. We take one more from the New Testament, Acts chapter 3, where it is also applied to Christ. This is Peter now preaching. But you, to the Jews that crucified him, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. It's kind of like, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? How could you have an innocent man preaching righteousness, upholding scripture, healing people, doing miracles, and then you want to kill him and get the real outlaw who deserves to be killed set free? Where's the logic to this? This is all baked into what Peter's state, statement. Uh, and, and, of course, they hated Peter for it, too. He is called the, the God of the whole earth. And this is the Christ that settles it. The divine identity of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says about Christ in Romans 9, verse 5. Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. The eternally blessed God. Amen. He straight out calls Christ God. That's not the only place, but that's one of them. And so this character in verse 5 is Christ. Verse 6 now. For Yahweh has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. Well, God separated from Judah. He did not divorce the northern king, the southern kingdom like he did the northern kingdom. Ezekiel 10 explains to us how the Shekinah reluctantly departed from Jerusalem. It was a spiritual separation, not a severance. Uh, And then Judah went into exile to Babylon. Isaiah 50, verse 1. Thus says Yahweh, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? So he's saying, I have not given you up, but I am separating from you as part of your judgment. I can't live under the same roof with idolaters without dealing with it. Jeremiah picks it up too in Jeremiah 3.8. 
And there he says, I had put, speaking of the northern kingdom, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. So the metaphor of divorce and marriage, of barrenness, all of this goes into God's relationship with the Jewish people. It teaches us that God does have a boiling point with people. That there are consequences to rejecting him. And there are benefits to not rejecting him. Um, we understand that as fair when we are offended. Why cannot people understand it when God is offended? Has not God a right? Is he not entitled to be offended by what people do against him? This is just a logical question. You don't have to go to a seminary. You don't have to read a thousand books. They ask these kind of questions to somebody who is not thinking it through. Before Christ, I didn't think these things through. I felt it was fine to just make up things about God. That's blindness. And God in his mercy rescued me. And I think to myself, well, how can, I, how can you reach a lost person? Well, there's no direct formula. There are things that you can do that will keep you from being used to reach the lost. And there are things that will heighten your uh, ability and chances of being used to reach the lost. Verse 7, For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. And the Babylonian captivity demonstrates that. Incidentally, the word forsaken there, you know, we hear that, and it makes it sound as though God was guilty for a moment. That's not, the Hebrew word means leave you. And you can say forsaken, but not as an accusation against God for somehow failing to do what he was supposed to do. That is not the meaning. The meaning that God is saying is that I withdrew from you. I separated from you. That's your punishment. And, uh, well, it, it got worse, and we'll cover that after the crucifixion. Verse 8, With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. Um, Israel, of course, the one that, the antagonist that provoked Yahweh, and the church can provoke Christ also, equally so. In Matthew 28, we know this, Jesus telling the disciples to go out and make converts, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. That's what a disciple, a disciple is a student, not just a convert. It's not enough just to be converted to Christ, you have to learn him. Well, he continues, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, that's God's assurance he's not going to forsake his people. Hebrews 13, 5, let your conduct be without covetedness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, you might get the feeling if you are in need that God has forsaken you. And, and, you know, if you're keeping up with the Joneses, you're going to have that problem. If the, the Joneses got a new car today, and if you're going to turn green on that, then you're going to have problems. Uh, contention, confusion, all those things come from self-seeking. But if you just rest assured that, hey, God is with me, I'll be all right, you're going to have more strength. John 15, 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire. And they are burned up. So we see this. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same person. 
We see that Christ is saying there are consequences. There are real things I expect from people. And so now we come to the church, Revelation 2, verse 5. The church at Ephesus, the darling church, the church that had all the advantages. And then she left her first love. And he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I will sever the relationship. Um, how else should it be? Should God uh, just uh, bless the wicked and let the righteous just suffer? Of course not. Verse 9, For this is like the waters of Noah to me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. Israel will survive her judgments. That's what he is saying you're going to be dealt with, but as a people, you will survive. Verse 10, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says Yahweh, who has mercy on you. That covenant of peace is going to be under the new covenant in Christ, who, of course, is the prince of peace. But again, he says he's not going to forever distance himself from his people. Verse 11, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. Verse 12, I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stone. So ultimately, in the kingdom age, they will be magnificent. God is assuring them of future blessings. Uh, the redemption of Israel from all her suffering. Verse 13, all your children shall be taught by Yahweh and great shall be the peace of your children. Had the Jewish nation accepted Christ, then their entire history would have been different. But they did not. And because they did not, this verse has been postponed until he reigns on earth in the kingdom age. Jesus quoted this verse, a section of this verse, to those who were resisting him, who were refusing him. John chapter 6, it is written in the prophets, Isaiah specifically, and they shall be all taught by God, as it is here in verse 13. Therefore, Jesus said, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So Nicodemus couldn't keep away from Christ. Joseph of Arimathea put his own life on the line when he went and asked for the body of the crucified Christ because they were taught by God, by the Spirit of God. They knew that uh, he was not one to be crucified. They didn't have the whole story yet, but they got it. Instead of the leaders submitting to Christ, the people and the leaders opted for this, Matthew 27, 25. And I, I think this has to do with all their suffering. He says here in Matthew 27, 25, And all the people answered and said to Pilate, Let his blood be on us and our children. Well, we look at their history beginning just 40 years after those words, about 40 years after those words were uttered, 
after they cursed themselves. It's been nothing but misery. The Romans came and wiped them out, dispersed them. There were a series of wars and, uh, with Rome, great slaughter of the Jewish people, crucifixions of the Jewish people. So many Jews crucified, they ran out of wood to crucify them on. If today you give them the antidote, you say, here is the key to stop the suffering of the Jewish people, the Christ, Jesus, your Messiah, my Christ, they'll turn on you many times. They don't want to hear anything about Jesus Christ from the Bible. We just saw this, these two pundits going at it. One mentioned a Bible verse, the other one went ballistic. It's serious stuff. The Bible's not fooling around. Uh, sin has done some heavy work. And uh, I think when, I think of this verse a lot from Luke's gospel. The words of Luke concerning the teachings of Christ, men ought always pray and not lose heart. I think of that a lot. Because you want to lose heart. You want to just give up. What's the point? I've been praying for this for decades. This is right. Hell doesn't have to pray to get what they want. And, you know, this is the war we are in. And it always comes back to, but but God's worth it, which is the meaning of worship. I worship him. And, uh, well, that's what he wants. That's what I'm going to do. The rest is, you know, beyond me. The arrow is beyond me. As, As Jonathan said to David, is not the arrow beyond you, David? They're just things that are out of your reach. But you know what you're supposed to do. Verse 14, in righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come to you. That ain't happening today, this is future. Uh, Israel, is they still are oppressed. They still are targets of Satan. Isaiah 59, verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says Yahweh. Do you catch that? Those amongst the Jews that turn from their sin. So just being born a Jew is not enough to go to heaven. Just being born in a Christian home is not enough to go to heaven. You must have that personal relationship. And the 21st verse of Isaiah 59, I think is worth reading. Listen to what the Lord, how he closes that last statement about the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says Yahweh. Then he says, as for me, says Yahweh, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth. Pause there. Paul was, Paul and Peter, they were Jews. God put words in their mouths. We call them the New Testament because it's in the New Testament. God continues, I have put in your mouth, his words, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants, descendants, says Yahweh, from this time and forevermore. And so there in Isaiah 59, verse 21, God is saying, the time will come where you will not depart from me again. You will be my people. And you will preach my word. So we go back to what I said earlier in the millennial kingdom. The Jews will be preaching to people born in those days, in the thousand year reign of Christ. They will be preaching to their children, because they will have children. 
Not those who've died and gone to heaven and now have come back with Christ. Those who have survived the tribulation period. This is why probably the, all the rewards that take place after the thousand-year reign when there are no more deaths and then the rewards are handed out. certainly looks that way if you look at uh, Revelation eleven eighteen, where God talks about the rewards at that time. Anyway, that's a side note. To be right with God and to be right for God. That's what I want in life. What do I want most out of this life? To save souls, to be right with God, and to be used by God. What is left? Well, the reality is that there are real forces doing everything they can to stop that from happening with every single one of us. Whether it is a church or an individual, there are spiritual forces that want to do whatever can be done to sidetrack the believer, to get you to rather uh, prefer fame or eloquence or stature or beauty or wealth or whatever else, anything but righteousness. And uh, we all know it's true. Verse 15, Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. I think the objective answer to where, what is Isaiah talking about here is Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, when Satan is released, he influences people that have not ever died, that have lived in the kingdom age, and they turn on Israel and God's people. And, it's, and they're instantly dealt with. I think that's what verse 15 has to do. I don't know where it could fit anywhere else. Verse 16, Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. So the weapons and tools of men, however they may be used, whether for God or if they're satanically employed, as we see with Hamas, um, they certainly are satanically employed. God is saying, regardless of what men do with their tools, I am still in control. It's not that hell has not broken loose, gained the upper hand. Revelation eleven eighteen that I mentioned earlier, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. And he goes on to say that you should destroy those who destroy the earth. And uh, that setting is again at the end of the kingdom age. Verse 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh and their righteousness is from me, says Yahweh. Well, that's not, a act, that's not to the individual Christian. There are weapons formed against us that do kill us. Or there'd be no martyrs otherwise. This, again, is the kingdom age. Um, ultimately, they can't harm the spiritual man, but uh, the physical man, for sure. Uh, the Jewish people have longed for the fulfillment of this verse, but they've sought it without their scriptural Messiah. And not until Christ returns will this happen. And uh, just want to finish up by saying, where he says here, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Well, the servant of the Messiah, we won't read of him again in that form in Isaiah that we had in chapter 53. But going forward, servants being plural, it is the role of the righteous within 
Israel, but it is expanded to those within the church, regardless of their ethnicity. Well, that was a lot of stuff. Let's pray. So you wanted to come to a Wednesday night. (laughs) Our Father, um, it is a lot, but uh, I'd rather... I'd rather be a doorman for you than a sit on any other throne. Uh, it is all about you, Lord Jesus, and I thank you for your word. As I know, those who love you and want you, very grateful to you for leaving us these things to ponder and to apply. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.